scripture for today is in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. I charge I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, sober endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have given the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. You may be seated. Well, it is a, uh, it's always a joy to come and, uh, and just partner with you guys in ministry for the day. Uh, it's encouraging. Uh, you know, it's always a family gathering. It's a weird, when you come across other believers, there's this odd unity that you have immediately uh, as you come across fellow brothers and sisters and recognize that we serve the same God, we worship the same King, and we gather for the same purpose. And, uh, you know, I asked Grant as, as I was kind of weighing over, uh, you know, what to preach this morning. I gave him a couple of options, and of course, Grant chose the rougher of the two options, and uh, so there may be a little uh, toe-stepping on this morning, and so I didn't bring an entourage. I brought bouncers in case, uh, in case it gets a little bit uh, too rough, so... A few weeks ago, um, and I don't know if any of you guys did this, but that, that, there was that face aging app that was kind of going around, and, uh, and one of the college kids took my picture and, and aged me, and uh, it, was, it was not a, a pretty picture, to say the least. And so I began to think, I was like, wow, that's not that far away. Um, and as I began to kind of look at that picture, and I actually pulled it up a couple of times because not only was it scary, um, but I told my wife, this is what the future holds, sweetie. And uh, she kind of got wide-eyed and, and went and, and immediately went to her prayer closet uh, to ask for more grace. But it began to cause me to reflect a little bit. And I think this is what, what in Psalm 90, uh, what Moses gets at when he says, teach us to number our days so we may gain a heart of wisdom. Uh, I'm 42 years old, so I am officially uh, in middle, middle life. I probably have more behind me than I do in front of me. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's not scary to me, although it's, it's kind of disconcerting. Um, as I reflected on my life, I've got, a, um, I've got four daughters, and so that, that probably aged me in that app filter a little bit more than most people get aged. Um, but I've got a daughter who's going to be a junior. So I've got two years left with her. 
right? And it was, and I know it's cliche uh, to think that, man, she was just this big, and now she's, you know, this tall, and, uh, and she's starting to drive, and she's going to be off on her own, and it's what you raise them for, uh, but it happens really quickly. The days go really slowly in parenting, but the years go really fast, and so they've aged, but I didn't uh, until I look in the mirror, and I'm like, man, I really have a, a lot of time has gone, has gone past. And so there are some things about getting older that are good, though. Uh, I like being able to say things that you can't say when you're 20. Uh, the grumpy old man kind of stuff. You guys have sat under Gary for a while. He just says things, and, and sometimes you just dismiss him as like, yeah, he's the old crazy guy. But you get away with saying certain things because you've lived, right? There's some experience that has come with your life, and so you've kind of earned the right to say certain things. My grandpa says things in public. It's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Grandpa, you can't say that. And he's like, he's playing with house money. I mean, he's 90 years old. So he's like, what are they going to do? He said, I can pretend I've got dementia even if I don't. And uh, nobody's going to say anything to me. So, um, but I don't like the fact that something on me hurts every day. Uh, You get injured sleeping. Like, I, I want to set up a video camera and be like, what do I do at night that is so physically taxing uh, that, that I wake up with a sore knee that I didn't have or my back aches? Um, and I've just come to the realization when I watch my eight-year-old jump out of her bunk bed, like, boom, wake up, boom, and she's gone. And it's like, that would take me two months to recover from. And if I did that, I, I just, I would, I would ache for a really, really long time. But there is some grace in getting older and, and having to, to reflect on God's goodness in, in our lives, but also just that constant assessment where you're saying, am I on track, right? Is this where I need to be at 42 years uh, of age? And, and one of the things that I found myself reflecting on in the last week was, uh, was my, my, my teaching career. I was a school teacher for 11 years. I absolutely loved it. I love young people. Uh, there is a, uh, a wide-eyed, you know, kind of ambition that they've got in their life. And so I began to reflect on, uh, on God's grace and, and allowing me to do ministry in a Christian school for so long, for 11 years. And the joys that I had, which was watching, coming across some of these young people who are now 30 years old and having kids, and they're, they're now faithfully going about ministry. They're, they're leading their wives well. Uh, they're involved in the church. They are proclaiming the gospel to their kids and, and how enjoyable uh, that is. Maybe, maybe that's the greatest blessing uh, in, in my life of ministry is watching men and women continue on in the faith. Conversely, the saddest thing is, is coming across some of these young men that I spent hours discipling, men and women who were passionate about, uh, about Christ, um, and they've burned out. Uh, they have simply left the faith for whatever reason. Uh, they're not following Christ anymore. I thought going into ministry that funerals and cancer diagnosis and divorces would be the hardest things to deal with, but it's not. The hardest thing is coming across someone who just, for whatever reason, they've just left. They've, they've kind of fallen in love with the world and have abandoned the faith, and, and it's really sad. And some of you have kids, you have family members, you have friends who have done this. In fact, just this week, if you follow the news, uh, Joshua Harris of, uh, you know, I Kissed Dating Goodbye came out this week and said, you know, I'm divorcing my wife and I'm no longer a Christian. Um, I've, I've abandoned the faith and I'm certainly not in the way that you guys would define it. I'm, I'm unorthodox is what he has said. Um, those, those things are sad. And, and we see them almost every day um, in our lives and, and in the news. These are the, the people in the parable of the sower who spring up and, uh, and either are choked out by the cares of the world or the, simply the heat of the sun gets to them and they wither, but they don't stick the course out. They don't bear any fruit. 
Sometimes we overlook the warning that is in this parable. We just kind of immediately go to the, to the bearing of the fruit side and not realize that there are two seeds that, that I think offer a strong warning for us. And so my challenge for you this morning um, in that context, and we're not going to look at that parable, but is, you know, are you fighting to continue to gain roots in rocky soil? And are you fighting to bear fruit even in the midst of a, of a hot sun and, and to be strangled out by the cares of the world? And so what are we doing this morning to stay focused and fruitful so that we might, uh, that we might finish our race? Now, we often sit here and we think, well, that's not going to happen to me, right? I love Jesus, and so I don't really have to heed that warning. Uh, but as the hymn says, we're all prone to wander. And, uh, and many times, if you wander far enough, it's really hard to find your way back. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to encourage some of you who are wrestling with these things in the faith uh, to continue to wrestle, right? Continue to fight. Fight is a sign of life. And for those of you who have wandered off, my goal is to point you back and to say, look, this is what it looks like to follow Christ. And for those of us that are really comfortable, is that I will afflict you a little bit that I will kind of challenge some of your presuppositions and hopefully put you on alert. So if you've got your Bibles, I, I hope that you, you do. 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, it's already been read, and so I'm not going to read it again, but I will refer to it quite often. 2 Timothy is my favorite book in the Bible. It is the, it's the last words of a, of a godly man who's at the end of his ministry. He is writing a very personal letter uh, back to a very dear friend, maybe his, his closest friend, as he, as he frankly awaits death and execution. Timothy is a pastor now in Ephesus. He's really young in his ministry. And so this letter is pastoral in tone, but it's very friendly. It's very warm. And if you read it with that mindset, you don't just see the charges. You see the humanity come through as one man is reflecting on all of the time that he's poured in to this young pastor. And so I've, these are is a reflective letter. Uh, it's offering some advice, but it really is just encouraging Timothy. Timothy, stay the course, man fight the good fight, finish the race. Um, and so through this text, and, and again, I hope you have it in front of you, you really have the juxtaposition of two men. You have Paul, who is going to use himself as an example for Timothy, and he's going to say, look, Timothy, I, Timothy would have known this. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's, been, uh, he, he's received the lashes at least five times, uh, probably more than that. Um, he is vilified in every town that he goes into. He's had every reason to give up, right? There's always been resistance against Paul. And then you get to verse 10, and you have the quick mention of a man named uh, Demas. And no detail is given about this man except that he's abandoned Paul and that he has fallen in love with the present world. Now, if you're a discerning Bible reader, you know that Demas is a familiar name. He pops up in Colossians, and he pops up in Philemon. As Paul is saying, look, Luke and Epaphras and Aristarchus and Demas send their greetings back to you. And so what we can discern about a man like Demas is that he was there. Right? He was sat under Paul's teaching. He, here is a man who uh, saw the miracles in the early church. He was a fellow worker in the gospel. And yet somewhere along the lines, he gets choked out by the cares of the world. Now, Paul doesn't go into any detail about what this looks like. He doesn't lump Demas in with the false teachers who are a threat to the gospel. He doesn't say this man's a villain of the faith. You need to be on the lookout for him like he does with others. He simply says, this guy fell in love with the world. Now maybe, and I hope, the Demas came to his senses later on in life and returned. But this is the last word that we have on him, and so we have no idea what becomes of this man. 
And I bring this up this morning uh, because I, I want to impress upon us the danger of presumptuous thinking, right? We, we sometimes think, well, so-and-so made a profession at VBS. There's no fruit in their lives. They walk the aisle, or maybe even us. I walk the aisle, I'm good. As if it's Hotel California, right? You can check out anytime you'd like, but you can never leave. You're good. You don't need to bear fruit. There's no affection for Christ. There's nothing in your life that would demonstrate that you are a follower of Christ, except that you said something at one point in your life. And, uh, and there's danger, I think, in thinking that because we are, we, are prone, uh, we are people prone to wander, and none of us are immune from this. But if a man who saw the things that Demas saw, sat under the teaching that Demas sat under, can walk away, who's to say that we won't? And so the Christian life can sound really good when we're under a revival. And we're hearing just as I am playing on the, uh, on the organ, and we walk the aisle, and it's, it's great. But what do we do when we come across the realities of the Christian life that say to die to yourself, take up your cross, deny the love of the world, care for others? And we've created this theology in much of evangelicalism that causes people to think that you're locked in indefinitely. Right? None of these things need to exist. You can have a, a, a crown without a cross. There's no fruit, no affection, no pursuit of holiness. Um, and we want the world with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in, just as an insurance policy. I'm going to keep all of my affection. Nothing is going to change in my life, except I'm going to put a Jesus bumper sticker on my life, and somehow that is going to get me into heaven. Now, Paul has no room for this type of, of, of thinking. Uh, I actually read a, a pastor this week as I was preparing, and, and this is a quote, and I, you can't make this stuff up. But he says, if you pray to prayer as a child, you can die an unbelieving believer and still be saved. Now think about that. You can die an unbelieving believer and still be saved. That, that is, I, I think, antithetical to the teachings of the Bible. And so let's look here in chapter 4, and I don't think this one's on the screen, but chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Here's what Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, look, Timothy, there is a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They'll have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to truth. They'll wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So even here, we have hints of people leaving the faith. They're turning away from listening to the truth. They're wandering off into myths. We don't know why. Maybe the gospel just wasn't palatable enough for them. Maybe it wasn't inclusive enough for them. Maybe they didn't like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel that, 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 that was proclaimed. We proclaim the same things. Nothing has changed. All you have to do is look around at our culture and see why people are always looking for teachers to tickle their ears. Tell me what I want to hear, but certainly don't step on my toes. I run into people all the time who are, who are looking for churches, and I'll say, why are you leaving your current church? Well, the pastor, he just says some harsh stuff. Like what? Well, be holy. He doesn't need to tell me to be holy. That Jesus is the only way. Or a biblical sexual ethic in our culture. I mean, you really want to be offensive, proclaim biblical truth. And you'll see people leave. It will bring some people to you, like you guys. There's a like-mindedness here, but it will also drive people away. And so even here, people are being offended. They're leaving. And uh, this is why I, I love and I commend you guys for being here because I know your, your pastoral staff. I, I know Kevin. Um, and, and you guys are going to hear some hard things here, right? I mean, I hope you don't walk away fully in love with Grant every single Sunday, right? I hope you walk away saying, 
hmm, that was a little bit afflicting, right? That, that was an uncomfortable word because the gospel has edges. When you think about what it reveals about you, that you are a sinner with no hope except for Jesus Christ. Right? That's an offensive word uh, uh, that says you are sinful from birth. Well, no, I mean, I, I need to step into my true identity, right? I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and really God would love to have me on his team. And we say, no, this is all grace. It is all grace. You bring nothing to the table. That flies in the face of a world of, of self-esteem and self-gratification and really just self-worship, which is the mark of our culture. So I commend you for being part of a church that's going to step on your toes at times. I hope it does, because that you cannot open the Bible and not walk away and go, ouch, ouch. I see myself in these characters. I see Joseph and his, I mean, Jacob and his duplicity, and I say, I, I can do that. Right? I, I see myself in these flaws of these men and women. I go, man, that's a bad guy. And then I turn around and I go, oh, I see it. I see the sin in my own life. And so hopefully th this is going to encourage you a little bit to take some inventory. To encourage Timothy, Paul just doesn't give words. I love what he does. He uses his own life as an example. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Timothy, look at me. I've been poured out as an example. I got nothing left. I fought the fight. I finished the race. He's saying, Timothy, look, I had every reason to quit, but I'm still going hard after Jesus. And Paul had told Timothy this before. This is not new in the life of Timothy. In his first letter, he writes this in 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 12. He says, Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul's saying, look at me. I did it. You did it. You need to do it too. He's not saying, look, you made a confession, so you just got to coast now into eternity. That's not the word that he gives. He's saying the confession is just the beginning. You now need to stand into it. You now need to take hold of it. Now the fight starts. So some of you have run the mini-marathon before, or you at least know people who have run the mini-marathon. You know what the easiest part of the mini-marathon is? Registering. That's the best part. I mean, I don't even have to leave my house anymore. I can just click a couple of buttons, put in a credit card number, and I can register for the race. But you only can say you ran the mini-marathon if you cross the finish line. Right? You've got to get there. That's where the work starts. And so this is what Paul is telling Timothy. Make good on your race registration. Right? You started, now let's finish it. And one of the reasons I love Paul, and, and my guess is he had some enemies even within the church who were good guys, he doesn't sugarcoat things. Right? He doesn't round off the edges. He just says it, and he kind of lets the chips fall where they fall. Uh, he never presents the faith as something that's easy. You won't find it in Paul's writings where he just says, man, this is just the greatest thing ever. This is the easiest road. Just take the road less traveled um, in, in terms of how easy this is going to be. He doesn't do that. He always recognizes the struggle. You're fighting. You're running. You're going against the stream. When Paul says, I've kept the faith, he's saying, look, I kept valuing Christ above all things. When things were hard, I kept believing what he said. When I didn't want to, I trusted in his promises. When the world looked appealing, I had more affection for Christ than I did the things of the world. And this may sound easy as we gather here this morning and we say, yes, I love Jesus more than the things of the world. But what about when life gets rocky? What about when your mom commits suicide? What about when your wife loses a baby? What about when you lose your job or when your marriage is on the rocks and the cute receptionist decides to flirt with you and you're tempted? What are you going to value and treasure then? 
above all things. Because we live in a day and an age where there is far more worldly temptation than I think has ever existed in the world. Right? You have it at your fingertips at all times on your phones. It's just there. It's a click away that you can see all the temptation that exists. I do feel sorry for the young people. Um, I think the temptations at 13 to 18 years old are, are the greatest they've ever been um, with a world that is at their fingertips in a way uh, that, that has never existed before. We are in a raging sea of temptation, not only from internal as we fight against our own sinful nature, but also the worldliness around us. And that's why Paul uses these metaphors, because it's not easy. We run and we fight, but Jesus didn't present it as easy as well. In Matthew 7, 13 through 14, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So it's not just that the finding the way is hard. The way itself is actually hard. It's a life of repentance, self-denial, and sacrifice. Have you ever wondered this? I remember being relatively new in my Bible studies and wondering, why does Jesus turn away eager followers? It's odd to me. Here you have a man who's who's trying to kind of get things going, and people come and say, man, we want to follow you everywhere. And what's he say? He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have no place to lay my head. Other people come up, Jesus, we want to follow you. And he says, do you hate your father and mother? Because if you don't, you're not worthy to be my disciple. That's a weird statement, Jesus. You're not good at this marketing thing. You know, or they come up and say, Jesus, we want to follow you everywhere. And he says, are you willing to take up a cross and come after me? Because that's what's required here. Will you hate the world? And people walk away and go, well, I don't follow this guy. Like, that doesn't sound like a good path for me. But Jesus has never made it or presented it as something that was easy. He wasn't slick. He wanted people to know because he loved them. This is what you're signing up for, and I'm going to tell you at the very beginning so that you're not, so it's not a bait and switch that happens later on in life. But sadly, we've kind of created this culture in our church that if you just trust Jesus, the road gets easier. And some of you know this because you came to know Christ later on in life, and you know the minute you trust Christ, it got harder. Life got a lot harder harder. You no longer can just give in to yourself. Read stories about the persecuted church. It's maybe the, the, my favorite discipline I've picked up in the last five years is just reading about what's going on in the, in the world. And you become a believer in a Muslim country, life got a lot harder and instantly harder. You decide to get baptized and you are a business owner in the Muslim world, well, guess what? You're not anymore. In fact, your wife may be killed on account of your profession of faith. You now are an enemy of the state. You can't gather without looking around as somebody's going to take you out. In fact, one guy witnessed his own funeral. His family held a funeral for him in his presence. Nobody talked to him. They just buried a box because this man professed Christ. That's life getting harder a lot quicker and instantly. And we've kind of said, well, you can have the world and a little bit of Jesus, and we'll just kind of, you know, it gets a little bit easier. Uh, but this health and prosperity garbage uh, that is proclaimed in the United States, I think it's the most dangerous thing uh, that, that is out there because it sounds really good. It gets really close. But Paul loves Timothy. And because he loves him, he's not tickling his ears. He's telling him what he needs to hear. And he's saying, look, Timothy, this is not about your best life now. Your best life is the one to come. And so we keep that one ahead of us. This is verse 8, right? The crown of righteousness that awaits us when we take hold of Christ. And that's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. We remember the resurrection. 
That's what we do. So that we're eagerly, we want to be a church, and I hope Franklin City is a church that's looking forward to Christ coming back. I love his word, and I love the stories of Jesus, but you know what I'm going to love even more? Is when I get to actually grab onto him, when I don't need faith anymore, when I've seen it with my physical eyes and I can touch the, the, the holes in his hands and I can put my hand in his side and I can grab on and see the beauty of our risen Lord. That's what I'm eagerly anticipating. That's my best life now. If this is the best life has to offer, yeah, I don't know what we're looking forward to then because my, I ache and I'm, you know, constantly worrying about money and even as good as things are in the United States, if this is the best we got, then, you know, uh, then I think we're a people to be pitied. We're looking to something far greater. And Demas didn't believe that. Demas fell short. He looked the part, but at some point he just decided, you know what, the world's just better. I'm weighing these two things out, and this is where I'm going to place my affection. He didn't make good on his confession. Now, here's where we're going to get a little theological, and here's where I want to clarify some terms. Um, Somewhere along the line, we've decided uh, that we are so scared of adding anything to the doctrine of justification by faith alone that we have taken away any activity that we have in our faith, any perseverance that we must, uh, that we must put forth. And so we, we kind of offer our salvation as a crown uh, without a cross, as a reward without responsibility, um, as a medal without a finish. Uh, we want to give participation trophies. That's what our culture does, right? Here's a participation trophy. That's not Paul's language. What does he say? You run in such a way to do what? To gain the prize. That is what marks the effort that you put forth. That's how hard we strive after Jesus. And I think we do this in part because we haven't defined our terms properly. We put our faith in faith. But your faith isn't what saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. You can stand on the top of a mountain, look out over a cliff, and say, I really believe that I can fly. You can jump. That passionate faith is not going to help you out when you're about 200 feet from the ground. But a parachute might, right? You put faith in the ripcord, you pull something, something externally has to save you. And so we put objects, we put our faith in an object, not our faith in faith. So D.A. Carson tells a great story, and some of you may have heard this. He says, imagine two Israelites in Egypt, and they're sitting there talking. And one of them's like, man, isn't this awesome? We're going to get delivered tonight. The angel of death is going to come, and he's going to take out the firstborn, and he's just got a mop, and he's just putting blood all over the doorpost. He's just, you know, woohoo! this is great, just do it. And you've got another guy who's a little cynical. He's like, you don't think this is silly? Like, we just put blood on the doorpost, and somehow we're saved? And he just, he barely believes. It's like, he got a little bit of that blood. He dips a Q-tip in. He kind of taps the corner, puts a couple of dots up. He's like, I guess I'll cover my bases. Now, which one of these two men is saved? Which one of these two men is delivered? Both, right? Because it wasn't the level of faith that saved them. It was the object of their faith that saved them. And sometimes in life, we have feeble faith. Sometimes we're just dipping a Q-tip into the blood and going, this is all I've got. I don't have any other option here, right? There's a grace in that, but it is the object of the faith that saves. It's not faith in faith itself. Now, let me be clear about two things here. I do believe we are justified by faith alone, right? I just think we need to do a better job of explaining what faith is, right? It's not believing passionately about something. It's actually leaning into something, right? It's followed by activity. So they, that those Israelites could have sat there and said, well, I believe that'll happen, yeah, there was a mark, right? There was a, there was a do something, not because they were saved by it, 
They were saved by their faith as it was marked in what they did, right? So Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But what did he do when he believed? He left, right? He, he moved out following what God had told him to do. The second thing I think we need to do, uh, or that I need to clarify, is I don't think that people lose their salvation, okay? Uh, so some of you are going to walk away from here going, well, what does this really mean? I think uh, that, that there are just a lot of people who profess faith who don't actually possess faith. And I think this is what you get in Matthew 7, uh, when they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he turns and says, I don't even know who you are. Right? You, you profess these things, but you never possessed Christ. And I think there's a big difference there. We are justified by faith alone, all right? And, and I think the Bible is clear that for those who are in Christ, nothing will separate us from the love of God and that we will persevere in our faith. But I want to be clear here, all right? So understand this. Perseverance is not the means by which we get Christ to be for us, okay? But it is the effect that God is already for us, right? We persevere because God is for us, not to earn his favor, this is what Paul writes in Philippians 3. I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Right? It's reciprocated. It's not causal. And I think that's important. If you were in Christ, get this. This is an amazing truth right here. If this doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. If you are in Christ, then God is as much for you as he ever will be. I mean, think about that. We don't earn the favor of God. You don't persevere to obtain his favor, but because his favor is on us, because his spirit resides in us, we will persevere. So you read Romans 8, 28 through 30. I believe that for those who are in Christ, nothing separates us from the love of God and that no one is lost between justification and glorification. But the means by which we achieve glorification is by persevering. The mark is whether we're there at the end. We forget this, but the warnings of Scripture are all over the pages, and we're just going to go through a couple of them here. I'm not going to expound on these. I just want to read them. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Then we jump to Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Or what about Hebrews, which is loaded with warnings? Hebrews 3.14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What about 2 Peter 1.10-11? Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the, the qualities that Peter's talking about there, virtue, knowledge, self-control, if you practice these things, you will never fall. Conversely, if you don't, you might. So warning. But somewhere along the line, we've divorced justification from sanctification. But the grace that truly justifies us also sanctifies us. God is faithful to finish the work that he started in us, right? He just doesn't say, okay, now you're on your own. He provides the means for this as well which is Romans 8, 13. And some of you have this one memorized. 
if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, God provides the means through which we do this, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will what? You will live. And so God provides the ends and the means. He's the hero of the story from start to finish. And so we are called to put forth effort in our faith. But even the ability to do this, the ability to do these deeds, is the grace of God. And we saw that in Romans 8. We go to Ephesians 2, right? 10. You are God's workmanship, created to do good works, which were prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. So even in our activity, God is still glorified. And so God is the one who keeps us, but we need to work hard at staying kept. The preservation of God. God preserves, we persevere. All right, this is what Jude says. Go read Jude this week. It's a really short book. Um, and, and he says to his readers, work hard of keeping yourself in the love of God. And at the very end, he says, now to him who is able to keep you. So which is it? Are, is God keeping or are we, to be stay, are we to stay kept? Well, the answer is both. Both. God keeps, we stay kept. That's the balance. We don't understand this all the time, but if we want to dismiss these warnings and just say, well, God's just bluffing on these types of things. And you know what he is? He's the bad parent at Chick-fil-A who just sits in the corner and just counts. One, two, don't make me get up there. And the kid's running around like a Yahoo, throwing milkshakes everywhere. And you're like, and I want to be the parents like, I'll get up and spank him. Like, I know you don't want to. All you got to do is tag me in. I have no problem going and whacking some hind end here. So we sit there and go, is God just a bad parent? He's just threatening, but these threats don't actually mean anything. We, at some point, we're going to have to create a theology with a little tension that says, man, we got to take God at his word. And we love the systematic theology that locks us in. But there's an awful lot of warnings. Now, I think the warnings are the means through which God keeps us when we take them seriously. Look, friends, the Christian life's not passive. We are told to stand against the devil, resist temptation, grow in holiness. Faith requires constant work. The imperatives are absolutely everywhere, uh, but, but many times we have a, a drifting faith. There, there I say a dead faith. And so uh, as we kind of wrap this up, I want to picture, I want you to picture this. There was a story of a young couple in Florida. Glenda and Robert Lennon were their names, and, and, and Glenda was hot. They were on a boat out in the, uh, out in the Gulf somewhere, and she decided she was going to do some spearfishing. It's just an average day, I suppose. She jumps into the water, and, uh, and she looks up after a while. Her, her husband was on the boat taking a nap, and she was like 600 yards from the boat. She didn't realize the current was slowly taking her away. So she calls. She wakes up her husband. They're not panicked. Her husband was a collegiate champion swimmer, so he just jumped in. There was nobody else on the boat, but he just jumped in uh, to, to go and to get her. He got to her. They're kind of laughing around. He starts to pull her back. He says he struggles for like 45 minutes. He doesn't gain any ground. He didn't realize the current was so strong. He looked up, and now he's 800 yards from the boat. And so he told Glenda, you wait here and tread water. I'll swim back to the boat, and then I'll just come get you. And it took him six hours to get back to the boat. By now, it's dark. And he goes all over the place looking for her. He can't find her. Um, he goes in the next morning, gets the Coast Guard. They come out. She was 20 miles from where they started. 20 miles, still alive but 20 miles from where she didn't see a current, right? The, everything looked calm. Um, and uh, you're naive in this culture to not think that there's a current, right? There's a strong current in this culture that is beckoning you to fall in love with the world. In fact, just this, uh, just this week, if you follow the news, there were three people killed by riptides in Florida because they ignored the signs. 
Right? Well, this is a sign this morning. Demis is a sign for us that says, be careful. You dip your toe into the world, and then you want to put your foot in the world. Next thing you know, your waist high. Next thing you know, you're off your feet, and you're being swept downstream. <clears throat> Friends, no one starts with an intent to fail. We're all going to see it. Nobody starts their Christian life and says, you know, I'm going to do this for 10 years, and then after 10 years, I'm just going give it, to give it up. Demis didn't. Certainly Judas didn't. And uh, he had every intention of finishing well. So what happened? It's little by little. I'm going to close this with just a couple practical points. And none of this is going to be new, right? Most of preaching is reminding. I'm not giving you new information. It's just it's good, what good shepherds do. They say, remember, remember, remember. So, so here's, the, uh, here's the first one. You need to stay aware. So I like to take, I used to take boys to Yosemite National Park every year uh, when, I was, when I was teaching. I'd disciple them all year, and then when they graduate, we'd fly out. And uh, these are a bunch of guys that a lot of them had never spent a night outside. So this is their first night, you know, in the middle of the mountains in the Sierras. And um, we were coming down from Half Dome one day, and uh, a baby bear came out. It's a little itty-bitty cub. And, of course, the boys are all like, oh, look at the little baby bear. And, of course, I'm... I have a little bit more experience in the wilderness. So what does baby bear mean? Mama. Mama bear. So I'm immediately like whacking these boys, like stop touching, grab your stuff, let's get going. They're like, oh, but it's so cute. It's not going to hurt us. You're right. That bear is probably not going to hurt you. But that bear is a sign of something that's coming. And so as we're walking down the trail, the boys are talking about the bear. Every snap of a twig I heard, every rustle of leaves, you know, I'm on edge. Because I'm the only one that's aware of the danger that is lurking. And so one of my, my practical signs is you guys have got to fight for alertness. Because after a while, you get on the trail and you just kind of get numb to it again. You get comfortable with where you're walking. And if Christians were more alert, I think our streaming on Netflix would be far more selective. I think the friends that we invite into the fellowship of our lives would be far more selective. We need to be a more alert people. Know yourself. Know what your tendencies are and fight against them. Know that you're in a war. But so often we treat this like two, two brothers. So if you've got brothers, you remember these days, uh, you're fighting, right? You're kind of wrestling around. It's all giggling and laughing until one person's not giggling anymore, right? So my, I had a younger brother. Ah, everything starts out. Everybody's having fun. And then all of a sudden, boom, my brother just land one to the side of my face. It was like, I didn't know things changed. Right? I thought this was just all fun and games. I thought we were just wrestling around. Now the rules have changed a little bit, and, I, and it was a little bit too late on my account for the sake of my jaw. I got punched. Uh, we're really fighting here. Well, the world's always fighting you. Man, it wants to make you numb. It wants to inebriate you. This is why Paul tells Timothy, be sober-minded. He's saying, think clearly. And you think of how drunk we are as a culture. One of the common themes of these books on the persecuted church that I read about is that they will say, don't pity us right? We, they, 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 I find that they actually feel sorry for us over in the West. And that's shocking, but they say, look, we're not drunk, right? We, you guys are drunk. You, you're, you're in a stupor living your Christian life, and you don't even know it because you've built up a tolerance for sexual promiscuity in your culture. You've built up a tolerance for the things that you're willing to take into your life. And Paul says you need to think clearly. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. How often do you do that? How many of you stop and say, man, am I bearing fruit? I need to go out to the tomatoes and just see, is there actual fruit coming out? Secondly, use your weapons. Ephesians 6 gives us two, the, the, the Bible and prayer. And sadly, we have disregarded a lot of these things in our lives. But what the Bible allows us to do is it allows us to shoot the stars. 
And that's a phrase, it's a Navy saying before GPS where, where the sailors would walk out at, at dawn and at dusk and they would take, they would look at the stars and say, are we on track? The Bible's the mirror, right? Isn't that what James says? You, 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 it shows us things. And sometimes it's unflattering. Like, I don't know if you've ever looked. The first time I was ever on high-def video, it was like, oh, that's not good. And some of you ladies have these mirrors that like amplify everything. And I looked at one of those and it was... It was bad. It's like, oh, turn away. Get behind me. Um, but the Bible has a way of doing that at times. But we don't spend enough time in reflection. We don't spend enough time uh, on our knees. Um, so you just, is it because you just don't need it? I mean, is that what we think? That, that the Christian life's enough? We don't need God's word. We don't need the sword. We don't need time in prayer. Um, I read a stat this week that said the average evangelical will spend 15 minutes a week in the Bible but 25 hours watching television. Now think about those two habits. Which one do you think is having a greater impact on what you think about? Think about your home. I mean, think about where we are as a culture, how subtle the devil was. Put a television screen in every, in every room and turn them on all the time so there's no silence, there's no reflection, there's no time for prayer. Oh, and then we'll put them in your pockets too. And we just, and I'm not saying everything you watch is bad. That's not my point. My point is there's an awful lot of things. Your home used to be a refuge from the world. Now we stream the world in, in every room, at all times, uh, even for our children. Thirdly, connect with other believers. This is my favorite part of Paul's letters. We love the theology, but I actually like the end of his letters because he's human, and right? He's talking about people, and he's saying, look, come to me. I'm lonely. I need help. I'm at the end of my ministry, but I want to be encouraged. And so he's saying, Timothy, I just want to be in your presence. Again, when you read about the persecuted church, they will travel miles just to see another believer just to be encouraged. And I need other believers in my life because I'm like the dogs and up, uh, squirrel. And I need somebody to just grab the back of my shirt, pull me back, smack me in the head and say, focus, focus. Was well, there anything wrong with a squirrel? Maybe not, but if I follow the squirrel too long, I end up uh, you know, out in the woods somewhere and I need older people in particular. And so this is a charge for some of you older people. The young people need you, whether they know it or not. Smack them in the head a little bit and say, keep going. I know Grant, all right? We had a lot of coffee together. He needs a lot of smacking. It takes a village uh, with Grant. And I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but he would admit the same thing, right? We're young, and, and, and we're, we're <laughs> I lumped myself back in. Um, <laughs> he's young, and, and, and there's something about saying, let me teach you some things about staying the course. You older people, you can give a scouting report on what the course looks like. Say, oh, you need a, there's a hill coming up. There's a big gap right there, so be careful. Oh, you've been married, you got five kids. Yeah, you need to watch out for these things. Tell your stories, write them down, encourage people, but connect with other, other believers. Read biographies about men and women who have finished well, uh, that they might be examples. And the last point is this, keep looking forward. Endurance requires more than just desire, it requires perspective. And this is why Paul speaks of that crown of righteousness. He's looking for something beyond this. He wants to be found in Christ above all things. He knows there's something better. Look, I, I tell young people this all the time. You are going to be what you are now becoming, right? That's who you're going to be. What direction you're headed in now is who you're going to be. Every step you take is taking you one direction or another, and you will eventually end up where you're headed now. And, and, and that, was, that hit me when I was younger. I remember making a stupid comment, what I do. Uh, I was probably 19, and I was talking to an, an older gentleman. I said, oh, I just can't wait to be a godly old grandpa. And he just kind of looked at me, and he said, that's great, but let's just take this one step at a time. And he said, what are you doing now to be a godly young man? 
Because if you're a godly young man, you stand a chance of being a godly husband. And if you're a godly husband, you stand a chance of being a godly father. If you're a godly father, you have a chance if you hang on long enough of being a godly grandpa. But you just don't wake up one day when they hand you a grandkid and go, now the godliness is set in. Now you are a holy, venerable old man. And so, friends, look ahead on the course and anticipate who you want to be. Um, because I want to be a race finisher. I do. I love that phrase in that song, when the evening comes, I still want to be singing. When the evening comes, I want to finish the race. I'm, I'm looking forward to a race being done. I ran cross country. The only part of the race I liked was the end, but I want to get there. But every step I take is taking me in, in one direction, and a race is the culmination of a thousand individual steps, friends. I love the Olympics, but the event that I loved the most was the 100-yard dash. I was a kid. I loved it. I could tell you everything about Carl Lewis when I was a kid. I couldn't name one marathoner, not one. And yet, which race was significantly harder to run? It was a marathon. Which race brought the temptation, middle of the race, to quit? It wasn't the 100-yard dash. It was the marathon. And the Christian life for most of us is going to be a, a marathon. Not for everybody. You think of Jim Elliott. I mean, he was a, that was a sprint for a guy like Jim Elliott. He, you know, if you know him, he was martyred for his faith in the jungle um, at a young age. And that was a sprint for him. But most of you don't know about his brother. You don't know about Bert Elliott, who spent 60 years on the mission field in Peru, faithfully going about doing ministry each and every day. Jim Elliott is a comet that shot across the sky, and he will receive his reward in full. Bert Elliott was just a stable star that just traversed as the night went on. And my guess is that was a harder battle. I don't know. I don't know how the Lord rewards those things, but there's something about doing battle for 60 years. Now, we don't know how long our race is, but here's your challenge. Keep running, guys. Don't give up. The world's saying, fall in love with me. I got all kinds of things to offer, especially you young people. And you're going to have to find something more valuable. And I'm here to tell you, it's Jesus. Jesus is better. All right? He's more valuable. He's more beautiful than anything that this world has to, to, to offer. So may your affections be set on Christ above all things. All right, Let us fight to keep treasuring Jesus so that we can fall across the finish line one day, bruised, battered, nothing left. I mean, how cool is it going to be? I love Rocky movies. I, I just There's something about a guy just standing up. He's been knocked down a hundred times, and he just outlasts his opponents. And I want the devil to someday just say, I just gave up. Like, that guy just won't go down. I threw everything I had at him. And we can say with Paul, I've been poured out. I have fought. I've thrown every punch I've got, and I'm not going down. I have finished the race. That when we crawl across that finish line on our knees, and Jesus leans down, and he picks us up. See, I get emotional when I get older. And he just says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I want to finish. I want to hear those words. That's my prayer for you guys, all right? Don't coast. Run hard after Jesus. Uh, be a finisher, and let's look to Christ. Let me pray.